0: How many have had a chance to read ahead? Okay. All right. When you read Psalm 14, was your thought something along the lines of, well, there's a lot of blessing in that one. <laughs> I wrestled with whether or not to, uh, to read this psalm and to study this psalm together. These are select psalms. I didn't have to take it, but I was struck by some things I want to point out to you as we look at this psalm. Uh, Let me read it, and then we'll begin to talk about it. It's only seven verses. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity, no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. What was striking to me in this psalm, it's, as you can see, it, 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 it speaks, it's, it's famous. And I, I, I thought about waiting this one until April 1st. You know, the, <laughs> uh, but, but, but the more I, I was just struck by something I want you to observe First of all, as I was reading along, did, this, did, did some of those words sound familiar to you? Yeah. Anyone care to identify where they were coming from? Romans. Romans. Ah, Romans 3. And there's some things from Romans 1 too. Yeah, one also. <laughs> uh, yes. So that's first thing. The, the, some of the concepts from this psalm are central to Paul's argument in Romans. Oh, maybe I shouldn't pass over it so quickly. But then what's striking, have you ever heard me talk about the law of repetition? You know, that if something is repeated, you pay more attention to it. Now, I noticed several of you following along in your Bible as I read Psalm 14. Let me ask you to do that again, follow. But this time, I'm going to read Psalm 53 watch follow along in psalm 14 Are you back in psalm 14 I'll read psalm 53 The fool has said in his heart there is no god they are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity There is none who does good God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God Every one of them is turned aside they have together become corrupt there is none who does good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear, where no fear was, for God was scattered, has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. That's Psalm 53. Did you think I got misplaced? Isn't that interesting? Now, there's so much, whenever I see repetition or some of the things that are lengthier than I might expect in scripture, I always think, Lord, you could have squeezed in a sermon of Jesus. You could have squeezed in a few miracles. Now, I'm not going to get into why there is, but this repetition is intentional, purposeful, and inspired. And one thing that I take away from it is, I think God wants us to pay attention to the psalm. So it's short, only seven verses, but let's let's look at the psalm together and recognize God said it twice. And... And, it's, and, and, and Paul thought it was so important, he took sections of it straight into the book of Romans. That right there is telling me, hmm, this is important. Uh, matter of fact, when I'm studying, uh, and, uh, I, I find commentators or, or preachers that I, I really appreciate. And so when I find them uh, quoting a certain book or a certain uh, author repeatedly... I make myself a note. Go get that commentary. Go get that book, uh, because here's this guy that I so appreciate, and he keeps u- using it. It must be important. I had one time a pastor friend of mine took we. Uh, he went to the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It was a former pastor, the late pastor Art Fineout from First Baptist Terrell. We so he took me to Fort Worth to see his seminary, and I took him to Dallas to see mine. We kind of gave each other a, a tour. But I remember we were going back this, by this uh, book room and he pointed out a book to me. He said, now that is a really good book. And I said, wait a minute, please. Don't do that lightly. If you tell me something is a really good book, I'm going to spend money to get it. So so, so don't say that lightly. And so um, I appreciated him. I respected him. And when he said, that's a really good book that really had an impact on me, I got out my wallet and said, I've got to get that book. So if if Paul inspired by God as he is laying out the foundation of the gospel and in particular why God's wrath is righteous and why we need the cross and he keeps coming back to the psalm that's why I thought we'd better include this one and and not wait until April 4th so seeing the psalm is important Uh, let's look at the song itself we'll start with the verses one to three that speak of man's condition. And it starts with To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David. And again, I've said before, but just a reminder um, that title, that superscription, is part of the sacred inspired text. To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David, we can quickly pass over that. One thing to notice it's by David. So it's a thousand years before Christ, by the sweet psalmist of Israel, the shepherd king. Uh, So that's all important. And again, he says it's for the chief musician. This psalm was meant to be sung in the worship of Israel. Now, you know, over in Ephesians 5, Paul says, we are to teaching one another, speaking to one another, teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so often there's a lot of discussion of what should um, worship music be like. Well, what this... When I see here, this is specifically designed by God for music, worship music. So if your worship song has the kind of substance that this psalm does, you're heading in the right direction. It's so, that's one of the things that's frustrating and not, not just more recent, some of the, the gospel songs of previous generations were um, shallow at best and sometimes just really questionable. Um, notice the meat. That goes in the psalm of worship. And yet look over at, at, at what Paul said. Teaching one another. or And, and Colossians, admonishing one another in, in our singing. And so I really love when a song teaches us and, and helps us understand, uh, know, and appreciate truth better. And that's where, where music helps make it memorable and appreciative. So, so this is something to, uh, to sing And the first stanza is, the fool has said in his heart, um, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good, is how he begins. So um, he begins by telling us the fool shows his folly by his view of God. He says there is no God. Now, that's not just the verbal bluster. That's the thought of his heart. Um, Let me say, I I, I have some of the commentary. I read a commentary and and heard a couple of sermons that made the point. And if you look at your text um, where it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You might notice that the words there is are in italics. And we we, we point out the fact that that means that um, those words are not in the original text. And so some say, ah, oh, see what he's saying here is no God. And so what he's saying is the fool said as his heart, no to God. That's not really what the text, that's, that's not fair to the text. Uh, in Hebrew, and I'm, and I'm, I really wrestle with this, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of information. There are a couple of words, particles, in Hebrew. One has the idea of non-existence, and the other has the idea of existence. One's negative, one's positive. Um... I'll, I'll go ahead and use them. The Hebrew word for doesn't exist is ain." that I'm sure that's where we got the word ain't." It was some Hebrew came to southern part of the United States and we got ain't. Um, and the, the, the Hebrew word, and it's basically two uh, letters in, in Hebrew, two-letter word in Hebrew for, for positive, it is it does exist, is yesh. So you might say, uh, yesh uh, room." Here at, at the table? Is there room in the table? And if there isn't, you say, uh, So it's a way of saying it, it doesn't exist. There isn't any. Okay? That's, that, i just saying that, and I probably didn't need to get into all that, but I, I saw a few different people say, oh, because of the italics and all that, what the fool is saying in his heart, no to God. No, he's saying there isn't a God. God doesn't exist. Now I need to explain further that word, the fool says in his heart. Um, the word, there's different words in the Hebrew for fool. Uh, this is this word for fool, and I'll tell it to you. Naval, naval, has the idea of moral folly, a morally corrupt heart. For example, there's a fool that has the idea of just someone who's, my loose paraphrase would be, he's an airhead. It literally, the idea of that, the simpleton, is that he, his, his brain is open. He, he has no discernment. He follows wherever the winds blow. That's the simple fool. He's, the simple is what he's called often in, in, in Proverbs. This is the hardened rebellious. His folly is a moral decision. Uh, his folly is, is um, rebellion and defiance. Now, I told you the word in Hebrew is nabal or nabal. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're remembering when David met Abigail. Nabal, remember, was her husband's name. And and what do we know about him? He was a fool. Remember? And so when, when, when David sent his troops to him and said, uh, hey, we've been taking care of your, keeping your flocks safe out in the wilderness. Could you share us a little food? I hear you're having your harvest party and... And Nabal said get lost. Abigail heard that and she said oh boy <laughs> we are in big trouble uh, and so she went and she prepared all kinds of goods and she went and she apologized to David and I wasn't it, I think it was she who said my husband's name is Nabal and it fits. <laughs> uh, I, I, I kind of loosely again render that uh, fool is his name and folly is his game. I mean he just um, he fits his name. Well, so now that's this. It is a this is a this folly. Just doesn't mean ignorant, can't figure out co- complex things. It's the folly of a hard-hearted defiance and rebellion. I don't care what you say is right. I don't care. I'm going to do my way, no matter what everyone else thinks. No matter what God says. That's that's the that's the. This folly here, the fool says in his heart there is no God. As I said, it's a, it's a, it's, it comes out of a moral issue. It's not just an... It's, and that's the problem. It's, it's not intellectual. It's, it's, it's a moral. It's coming out of his moral heart rebellion rather than I have sat down and I've theorized and I've philosophized. There, God must not exist. No, this is rebellion. I've shared before the example. I was in one of my classes... Uh, my professor who had, in another class, he'd been brought in as a guest lecturer to talk about Darwin and Darwinian evolution. And they introduced him as the, the leading Darwinian on the Berkeley campus. And so I thought, okay, he's probably pretty good on Darwin. And he made some interesting and great comments that uh, I wish I had time to tell you. I had a course with him in parasitology. And, and I, like I said before, I like to go up after lectures and listen. And, and he was... Um, uh, talking away to a student and he made this passing comment I don't believe in a God that if you do this you're going to have to answer to him and that's you know, and, and it really became clear to me this leading the Darwinian evolutionist on campus there was a moral element if there's a God I have to answer to him okay there is no God Try that next time you're being disobedient to the Lord and you're racing down the freeway and you see a police car and you say, I want to drive fast. There is no police car. Try that. Let me know. No, don't try it. You shouldn't speed. But, um, but here's the point. That's It begins with The fool says in his heart There is no folly Now let me quote From a leading theologian Of a previous generation Billy Sunday Billy Sunday used to say That sinners can't find God For the same reason Criminals can't find policemen They aren't looking You know Criminals don't want police To be around And that's the same With the atheist They don't want God to be around Because God exists Really, I belong to him, and I answer to him. Nope, there is no God. That's folly. Um, he goes on then to say, The fool said in his heart there is no God. <clears throat> they are corrupt and have abominable works. There is none who does good. And So, so notice there that he's saying there, there is a moral problem to the, to the sin, sin of atheism. But did you also notice? Look at your good grammar. The fool has said in his heart, How many fools are there? In this one, one singular. They, wait a minute. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. What's going on here? He is, he's gone from the individual example of the hubris of, of folly that denies God, but now then goes to speak of the general characteristic of unbelieving man, which is what Romans pick, Paul picks up in Romans, right? And so he tells us they're corrupt. The uh, the, the word for corruption has the idea of that which is destructive. They've they've done abominable work, vile. So the way they, the, the. the life decisions of the moral rebel brings destruction and and abomination sin destroys That's a sad thing to see how how sin can destroy a life, can destroy a family, can destroy a church, can destroy a nation. They've done abominable works, and then he goes on to say, "There is none who does good." That's one of the ones Paul grabs specifically out. There's none who does good, and so of course you have to say, "Well, what is good?" Because people do. Unbelievers give to charity. Unbelievers. Offer free medical care. Unbelievers do nice things. My, my neighbor who might be an unbeliever might be nice to me. The true good is that which is pleasing to God and intended for his service. There's none who does that. Well, he continues on in verses uh, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So there's that statement again being repeated. Kind of a closing refrain. There is none who does. There's no no one who is righteous. There is no one who is morally good. That's a great verse to pull up the next time someone says, Oh, he was a good person. Oh, there's no one who does good. Sometimes I'll quote that. Uh, when someone says, "Oh, you're, you know, you're, you're really, you know, you did, you're, you did, you know, you're good," or whatever they say, I also say, "There's none good," <laughs> jokingly. But, but the point is, this is this is the the doctrine of total depravity. All humanity is fallen. All humanity has turned from the goodness of God and are are morally fallen and sinful and rebellious. So this is humanity outside of Christ. Notice he says, God looks down from heaven. Now, whenever we see it, remember, God doesn't have to go looking for things. Here is The picture here is kind of God judicially investigating mankind. It reminds me of, remember, when God saw the Tower of Babel and he kind of investigated. Oh, if they keep this up, we're going to have a real problem. Or God looking down at Genesis 6 when he brought on the flood. God sending angels to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. That's God kind of showing, okay, I will do due diligence. I will investigate, though he knows all things. So God in heaven sees what we are doing. And so he's going to look down upon the children and see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks God. But instead he finds they've all turned aside. They've become corrupt. None who does good, no, not one. Um, I might mention that word corrupt here is different from the previous corrupt. The previous corrupt has the idea of destruction. This is the um, corrupt that can be, that reminds me of something, a kind of an unpleasant experience. Have you ever been really looking forward to a good glass of milk and all of a sudden you open it up, Having forgotten to check the date, and it is nasty. The other day, I poured. I was making some hot chocolate, poured it all in there, and by the time it had finished in the microwave, it looked more like cottage cheese. I checked the date on the carton. Ooh, corrupt. That's the word here. Like 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 sour milk. Just offensive. And part of what God is telling us, He's telling us. What man is like without Christ, man, in our fallen condition, why we need Christ. There's none who does good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. We, we live in, in self-destruction. I remember one of my, well, Dr. Ryrie, some of you will have a Ryrie study Bible or have seen one. Uh, he was, I took a course in uh, biblical theology from him one, one time, and he said... Um, Sometimes you ought to do a sermon series, and it shows you how well I listen to him. I haven't followed him up on it. Uh, you ought to do a sermon series on the terminology for sin in the New Testament. He says, an interesting study to notice that virtually every word for sin in the New Testament emphasizes how destructive and harmful it is. See, a lot of people say God's, oh, God calls all our fun and good sin. No, he says, I call it sin because it's it, it brings corruption. It brings defiling. It brings destruction. By the way, let me just read to you Romans 3, 10 to 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So Paul, when he's trying to think, what is the biblical evidence for the fallenness of man. How do I prove that man needs salvation? See that's how Romans. Uh, after some introductory matters. he remember verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed. Against those who suppress the truth unrighteousness. and unrighteousness. Then he starts seeing God create and create, showing him creation. But he goes on to show. Man needs Salvation, Jew and Gentile alike. And so especially in Romans 3, he said, you Jews think you don't need the gospel? Um, this is our Jewish book. Our Jewish book says there's no one who's good. Well, it's written to Jews, isn't it? So we're not exempt from this. That, that's how Paul's arguing. The heart that denies God is in rebellion. And unbelief is a moral issue. That's what we're getting from here, And it's a moral issue that's morally corrupt and corrupting of our lives. In Romans 1, he, he he quotes from the psalm also, and he demonstrates that God's character and existence are clear in creation and in man's heart. So when man denies God, he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The fool says in his heart, the, the rebel says in his fault in his heart there is no god. He's suppressing what he really knows. You want to talk about folly? Look at this incredible world and say there is no creator, there is no design. <clears throat> And so it shouldn't surprise us then, since it's a moral issue, that the rebel's behavior, uh, heart leads to their behavior. Now, what are the consequences of man's foolish rebellion? Verses 4 to 6. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? By way, in passing, if you were to go back and compare to verse 53, you might notice that we're a lot of times in chapter 14 it's references Lord, Lord, Lord. Most of the time in Psalm 53, it's God, God, God. Just an interesting contrast. Verse five, there they are are in great fear for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Well, verse four, all workers of iniquity have no knowledge. And so that's something to remind us too. Someone without Christ literally they don't, they don't know the whole story. And that tells me, for one thing, to be patient and even compassionate. They're missing a vital element in this discussion. But notice, though, they eat up my people as they eat bread. Just this sense of how violent and, and destructive unbelievers are. Those who don't call on the Lord. I thought of some illustrations of that, and i you know, I collect during the year. I watch the news and I, I clip out sections that relate to, you know, the, my prophetic update. And one of the areas that will be characteristic of end times is persecution of believers. And so, just some examples. Are you aware that right now, uh, uh, in the in Norway, a um, member of parliament, that'd be like one of our congressmen or congresswoman in this case, is on trial. Uh, for a hate crime. And one of the aspects of her crime was she posted a tweet that was a picture of the text, I think in Romans, because that's written in Finnish and so I don't read that. (laughs) But a picture of the text in Romans that describes that homosexuality is a sin. For for, For tweeting a picture of the Bible, she's on charge for... Um, hate crime, and I think it 's potentially a two year sentence and um, I think there 's another like a bishop in the independent Lutheran Church or pastor that 's similarly under um, charge they 're going to eat us like bread here 's you know here 's Finland um, so there 's one example uh, that we could look at just of many. Um, Here's January 19, 2022. YouTube this week determined a sermon from popular Christian leader, Pastor John MacArthur, is hate speech because he described the moral issues uh, biblically. Hate speech, and so YouTube banned it. So the Bible has become hate speech. Think of some other examples here. Um... In Switzerland, crosses are to disappear from the nation's largest cemetery because they upset others, other religions. So now the cross is considered offensive and to be removed from cemeteries because it's offensive. Those are just some examples I mentioned, I think, in the last prophetic update, how many churches in, in Canada have been burned down in the last year. And churches there are are under a similar hate speech. If you mention God's moral law and how it applies to homosexuality, marriage, um, they'll shut you down. And so I've mentioned before that there are Christian ministries in America that they have to uh, sometimes broadcast a different sermon than their regular sermon when it's going to Canada because it won't meet the standards of hate speech. Uh, effective in March of this year, uh, China's new law r- further repressing religion is coming into effect, and that will include um, forbidding of teaching of religion and 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 uh, using the internet for communicating religious beliefs. How else are we ever going to be able to communicate religious belief if we can't use our the, the internet? But but you see, I mean, they're, they're doing everything they can, can and telling churches, you must start preaching Chinese values in Chinese churches. We could go on, but, the, but, but what did he say in that passage? Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread. The violence against Christians in northern India, in um, Africa can't go in and describe but we see where is it coming from the heart of unbelief has denied God in rebellion and so because of that those who follow God those who live according to what they're rejecting are an offense to them and raise their anger and raise their opposition. And and if I may say, I really see that growing across the world, in our country and across the world. Increasingly, um, that's a problem. Uh, they're in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So what he's going on in these verses to say is there are consequences. They will face the consequences for their actions. They deny the very existence of God. They choose the path that dishonors the Lord. And so the Lord directly addresses them. You shame the counsel of the poor. So he directly, you know, God sees and God will hold them accountable. Notice verse 5 describes the fear of the unbeliever. They are in great fear for God is with the generation of the righteous. And so there's comfort in this, especially when you look over at Psalm 53. While the young believers dread their situation, those who trust in the Lord will know his protection and refuge. Though the appearances of, might, of the wicked might, are stronger, God will protect. And so we see the hardness of the heart that leads to corruption and defiling in their own behavior. It leads to anger and attack towards those who follow the Lord. And it will lead to God's consequences. Verse 7 then ends on on a more positive note for us. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel will be glad. So this is looking forward to God's ultimate delivery when God brings in his kingdom. Rejoice and be glad. In other words, the the opposition, the oppression, the suffering for believers is short-term. It's temporary. Christ will come and establish his kingdom and make all things right. So this is looking forward again to the promise of the kingdom. And says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And so the psalm opens on the idea of a defiant rebel rebel that doesn't even acknowledge God, and it closes with a glorious hope of God's people. The Lord's going to bring ultimate victory. And so I think that's as we see things growing. First of all, when we see someone, an atheist, ah, there is no God, recognize it's a moral issue. And I've often noticed that when... um, Maybe a professing Christian turns from the faith. A lot of times I start looking. Or I don't look, but I wonder. Is there a moral issue that's really at the root of this heresy? Of this, of this um, apostasy? Because if God, is, if, if God is true, I have to give an account. Ah, Therefore, I'm going to deny the Bible is God's word, that it's accurate, that God is what he says, so I can somehow cover up my heart's fears that what I know is wrong, God's going to hold, hold me in account. And so we see that that issue is there. But here we see for the believer the ultimate victory. We may face opposition and persecution. The ultimate victory is coming in Christ. We may not see it in our lifetime, but it's coming. And so, trust in the fact that God will make all things right. <clears throat> the those who claim that you know, for a while we went through where it seemed like everybody was atheist. Remember, and there's people that more and more deny God, but there were all these very out out there atheists and really pushing a new resurgence in atheism. Um, Spurgeon quoted an old Puritan thought on atheism. On earth are atheists many. In hell, there is not any. Uh, So some may make all their protestations and and arguments and all that. Not going to work. Bertrand Russell, the the, uh, anti-Christian philosopher, uh, someone asked him, What happens if after you die you face God and you realize you were wrong? He said, I will look him in the face and say, Sir, you didn't give us enough evidence. Try that. Don't try that one. <laughs> no. Paul would say, No evidence? Are you blind? It's all around you and besides you know it in your heart. No, the issue is a moral issue. It's a rebellion issue. And God will deal with the rebellion. And so I guess the challenge to us is if if you're imagining that you're going to deny God and somehow that will set you free, it won't. It won't. Uh, Denying something is bad for you, that something that's terribly dangerous to you isn't dangerous and then doing it doesn't make it safe God is and God is good and he, and, and he holds us accountable but he also offers redemption in Christ and he sees when his children are eaten up like bread he sees and he'll take care of us Father thank you for this passage challenging And yet, we see this so much more in our day than in recent days before this. Father, help us to not be intimidated. And help us, Father, to see with the eyes of Jesus to the heart. And recognize that unbelief as a heart resisting you. Father, give us a heart of compassion, a heart of discernment, a heart of wisdom, and, Father, a heart of faith and trust. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.